I think there are two prayers that a wise person will pray in the course of their time on earth. The first one is to accept what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and to ask God to forgive our sins. And that's the moment you inherit eternal life, when you are forgiven. But the second one, I think we might be wise to remind ourselves about tonight. And that's to ask God to give us the wisdom and the strength and the discernment to be certain that when we come into his presence, he can say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think we should all give God the permission to do whatever it takes to help us make those wise choices. Now, the train is leaving the station right now from 2005. And a year ago, you were at New Year's Eve, perhaps much like this, perhaps in this very room. And in the course of the past year, you made decisions. Some of them may have been unwise. Some may have been counterproductive. Some of them may have been in conflict with your core belief system as a Christian. And the wise thing to do right now is to learn from those poor choices and decide not to repeat those mistakes in 2006. And to say, Lord, whatever it takes in the next year, help me make wise decisions that will allow you to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour of the day of the Lord. But the Bible tells us we do know the season. When the leaves turn, it's autumn. When they sprout, it's spring. We know that we are in the season of the day of the Lord. We can't pretend to know precisely. But God has given us a super sign pointing to his return. And we are foolish if we ignore it. We prepared a short video to lay the groundwork for our update tonight. Let me draw your attention to the screens as we watch this. From the start of time, man has wanted to know where the world is going. Some look to the stars for a message, but the signs can be confusing. In fact, the signs on earth can give you conflicting direction. But there is a dependable sign that God has clearly given for us to know where we are on his prophetic calendar. Israel. Of all the countries, Israel is the site where God chose to stage the plan for man's redemption, the birth of his son, and the place where the great final conflict on earth would take place. October 5th, 1973. At sunset, the streets of Jerusalem were deserted because Israel's three million Jews were inside preparing for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But across the Suez Canal and on the Golan Heights, the Arab armies were preparing for a surprise attack. Israel was not only unprepared, they were badly outnumbered. The Egyptian army had been equipped by the Soviet Union and amassed a huge force of tanks and infantry. On the Golan, Israel was outnumbered 8 to 1 by the Syrian force of tanks. Despite the element of surprise and overwhelming superiority, within a week, Israel had turned the tide and captured additional Arab territory. This is just one of the amazing instances of God's protection of Israel against all odds. If we want to know where the world is going, look to Israel. A perfect prophetic storm 
That's what's gathering over the Middle East tonight, a perfect storm of prophecy. And as you saw those Israeli jets fly in the formation of the Star of David, it should make your spine tingle. Because God is just fulfilling what he has done. I, I want to draw your attention to two bookend scriptures if you have your Bible tonight. If not, we'll have them on screen. The first is uh, the first book in the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 12. will also be in the second to last book of the Old Testament, and that will be Zechariah 12. As we begin, let's get our bearings and take a look at just how big this awesome nation of Israel is that the whole world is trembling over. And compare it to our very own New Mexico. Let's overlay the nation of Israel over New There it is right there. Just a fearsome, huge chunk of land. In fact, um, Israel currently has a population now of 6 million. At the Yom Kippur War, it had 3 million. That's about the size of, oh, Honduras. How often do you see Honduras across the front page of the New York Times or the lead story of CNN? Almost never. But Israel on a weekly basis is the crucial issue. A little nation the size of Rhode Island with a population of Honduras. And yet, God has promised this country would be just what it has become. Now, the fate of Israel does not rest in the United Nations or Washington, D.C. or Damascus, Cairo, or Baghdad. It rests right here in Genesis chapter 12. Let's take a look at it. The great I wills of Israel. God said to Abraham, I will show you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will curse those that curse you. Let me tell you, from the time those words were uttered by God himself, Israel was a done deal. It had a certain future. It may have a rocky path to that future, but there is nothing anyone can do on earth to extinguish the nation Israel. Now, it's not that they haven't tried, because from Pharaoh to Herod to Hitler to Hussein, there have been multiple efforts to annihilate the Israeli people. Imagine if you had a neighbor, let's say that Colorado was an enemy of New Mexico, sworn to drive us into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, that is the situation tonight and has been really since 1948. If you look at the distance between uh, Albuquerque and Taos, you can understand that's just how far it is from Jerusalem to the Golan Heights that looks down on the Syrian Valley, the Becca Valley, where those tanks swarmed like so many ants in 1973. And that's just how far their neighbors are. The Golan is very much like the Sandia Mountains. It looks down on the Sea of Galilee, upon Tiberias, and they're able from that point before 1967 to rain down their rockets on the farmers, on the kibbutzim, and on the city of Tiberias. And if you go to Israel and have lunch at the kibbutzes, you'll see bomb shelters that are still active, where, where the Israeli children grew up during those years before 1967, between the War of Independence, because the Syrians were constantly bombarding uh, the Israeli settlements there around the Sea of Galilee. And so we need to understand that they are in a, they are in a vice grip they are, the, the nation of Israel is surrounded by Arab countries with 500 times the land mass of Israel. 
When you take into account Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Libya, Iran, Iraq. So what is the solution then with this huge mass of Arab countries with uh, 250 million people in the Arab immediate surrounding areas around Israel? What is the solution to peace? It's for Israel to give them more land. It, that, that is the, the, the compromise of the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Temple Mount, uh, the eastern city of Jerusalem, even the Golan Heights. Just give the Arabs more land and it will solve everything. It would just seem to me they may have enough land already. They're having some difficulty controlling that. But that is the solution that the diplomats come up with on, on a constant basis. See, 50 years ago, everything changed prophetically for Bible students. If you read commentaries from the 18th and 19th century, they're looking forward to, to a day. You know what? It happened in our generation. If you were alive in 1948, then you saw a tremendous land-sea change of the geopolitical spectrum in this world when Israel became a nation against all odds on May 14th, 1948. It's because of our scripture right here in Genesis. God simply said, I will make of you a great nation. And nothing but nothing could ever stop that. And so Israel has an inevitable destiny. And we don't know when, but we do know it's going to happen. God will reestablish the nation of Israel as what he meant it to be, the center of the whole earth. If you go to Israel today, you'll be surprised to find the Temple Mount is not under Israeli control. It's the most hotly contested 40 acres in the face of the earth right in the center of the old city of Jerusalem. But Moshe Dayan in 1967, following the Six-Day War, conceded control as a peace offering to the Arabs. And if you are taken up by your tour guide to the Temple Mount where Paul walked and Solomon walked and David walked and Jesus walked, and someday the Antichrist will walk, it will take your breath away. But before you go, your tour guide will say to you, don't take the Bible... You can't read the Bible up there, and you can't pray while you're up there. If you do, you'll be apprehended, escorted off the Temple Mount, arrested, deported, and forbidden from ever coming back to Israel. The Temple Mount, where, the, where Jesus Christ himself will someday set up his throne. That's the condition of Israel tonight. Now, we met last spring during our tour with Pastor Chuck and Pastor Skip, uh, a tremendous tour guide. Some of you met him when we brought him through announcing uh, Pete's tour coming up in, in the spring. And uh, he has an Israeli name, but he goes by his, his uh, web address, Steve, the tour guide. And um, we've hooked up an update, of course. It's uh, quite early or late, as you might imagine right now, in um, Israel. But we wanted to talk to Steve about the, the current conditions. And you'll see that Steve has a very excellent choice of football teams. We have a picture of Steve when he was... That's just outside of the... Um, why do you think sunsets are orange and blue? Um, this is just outside the Temple Mount. And uh, we talked to Steve about the recent mega changes taking place in Israel. For example, you've certainly heard that the president of Iran has recently made some radical statements. Um, I can't pronounce his name, but I can tell you what he said. Uh, he said, first of all, the Holocaust didn't happen during World War II. Jews should now be deported to Europe. Israel should not exist. This is by a head of state of a major nation. And that 
that the, the Jewish nation should be completely annihilated from the Middle East. So we asked Steve, what has been the reaction in Israel to these wild statements? Well, uh, Chip, those statements only confirm what every Jew knows deep within his heart. And therefore, part of its constitution is the destruction of the state of Israel. So this man just confirmed something that almost everybody here really believes. Now, what's important is the timing of the statement, being that, as you know, Iran is on hot pursuits of nuclear weapons. Uh, both the United States and Israel's intelligence services believe that this is only... Uh, a couple years away, and that's being the most conservative estimate. Uh, the Israelis believe even six months away. Capability uh, to make, let's say, go to the point of no return. No return. Uh, in other words, irreversible ability to make nuclear weapons. So that's the concern, obviously, that we have some radical leader of Iran who uh, many people believe and have documented that when Khomeini in 1979 came to power, this man was one of his executioners. This man is suspected of having a hand personally in the abduction of American hostages at the American Embassy in Tehran that year. That in conjunction with their pursuit of nuclear weapons obviously uh, does not bid well for us here in the state of Israel. Here's a guy who's now the potential hand that owns the finger that will push a button connected to a missile to wreak havoc on this country. So I think it puts Israel's government, uh, military, and populace on a high state of alert. Uh, obviously, uh, an urgency more than ever to prevent that country from attaining nuclear weapons. With the death of Yasser Arafat, the last year has also seen a new president for the PLO, an Israeli evacuation of the Gaza Strip, and we want to know what has happened since the dramatic pullout from the Gaza since Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip, the Gaza Strip has come under the dominion of Hamas, which is not under the jurisdiction, say, of Abbas. Abbas's organization, the PLO, and Hamas are rivals. And uh, it seems that Hamas is the upper hand in that rivalry, that Hamas has uh, more show of force on the ground. They have more uh, popularity among the masses there. So since Israel pulled out of Gaza, I think Abbas has become uh, neutralized to the degree where he's almost a non-entity and, and very few people take him seriously now as anarchy is really what uh, rules over Palestinian society today, not one organization or another. I, I would say that nothing's changed. In fact, uh, this week there's been rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza's territory. As Israel pulled the settlers away from those territories, it's basically near the line of scrimmage or the line of confrontation closer to the Israeli heartland, as those settlers basically provided a buffer zone between us and the terrorists, which no longer exists. So now those rockets are falling in major cities, uh, such as Ashkelon and Ashdod, as opposed to where they used to fall, which was within the Gaza Strip territory itself on those Jewish settlements that were a buffer zone. Now, Israel's also built a barrier for protection, and today the West Bank is getting much more attention. So what is the situation there? The West Bank is actually even far more strategic than the Gaza Strip, being that the West Bank comprises the topography that we call the mountains of Israel. Uh, anybody who reads the Bible, in particular Ezekiel 36, these mountains, are mentioned uh, in particular in scripture, they make up the eastern wall that defends Israel topographically. 
from any invader coming by way of the east. So, you know, therefore these mountains that we call the West Bank are really our main barrier and defensive wall against an enemy coming from, say, uh, Syria, Iraq, Jordan that would fall to the power of Islamic fundamentalists one day and no longer be under the rule of this friendly king today that rules. You know, what we call the West Bank, we have to understand its significance and topography, and that is that it's a long mountainous spine that runs down the center of Israel from the beginning in the Valley of Armageddon and running south past Jerusalem all the way down to the Negev. It's really uh, a defensive wall. So to lose that, wow, will place the country in, in serious uh, harm's way. Now, the group Hamas is an acknowledged terror group, and their candidates right now have become more and more popular for the Palestinians. How will Israel respond, Steve? Israel's official position is not to allow Hamas to participate in these elections, seeing that Hamas is a rejectionist group. Now, let me define that. Hamas's official constitution and charter state that their goal is to destroy the state of Israel. Now, likewise, the Abbas's organization, the PLO, its charter also says that their goal is to destroy the state of Israel. So there's really no serious difference between Abbas's organization, the PLO, and Hamas, other than nuance, in that the PLO, when they speak English before uh, Larry King Live or somebody in the American media, will deny this fact that their goal is to destroy Israel. Hamas is more public and outright with that confession. So Israel does not want an organization that's so public about its goal to destroy Israel on the Palestinian uh, legislature. The United States, likewise, has said recently would not like to see that, and that any Hamas participation in the PLO government or let's say the Palestinian Authority government would uh, endanger future American aid. America donates a couple hundred million dollars a year to the Palestinian Authority, and that would be jeopardized if Hamas was elected. I think in some ways it would be a blessing for Hamas to be elected because then the true faith of the Palestinian public designed on Israel would be publicized. It would no longer be such a secret that as a society, their goal is to destroy Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon has recently pulled a surprising move. He has left the Likud party and formed a new group. We'd like to know what the public reaction has been. Polls were taken actually yesterday. And this polls predict that Sharon's new party, which, by the way, in Hebrew we call Kadima, which means forward, that they would win uh, outstandingly. I mean, they would just crush both the Likud and the Labor parties that were the traditional two parties that made up the parliamentary democracy here in Israel. They will be cast aside, and the third party will take over the power of the government. I, I see no trouble for Sharon getting reelected. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it's a shame to the democratic process in that, uh, as you know, this new party of Sharon is made up of many people that fled the other two parties, both from the left and the right wing of politics here, so that there's no longer really a left wing or a right wing, but just a centrist party. It looks like they're going to win the next election, which is in March, which means if you're on the left or right of the politics in this country, you lose being that this new monolithic party has taken over all the politics here. Let's have a uh, final greeting from Jerusalem in Hebrew.
Shalom. Shalom. All right. Thanks, Stephen. We want to remember that despite all that, Israel still has an inevitable destiny. In fact, look at the Middle East as the world's gas station with a lot of crazy people running around with matches. That's really the condition we're, we're in right now. And Hamas and PLO and the Koran, if you read it, if you associate your, yourself with it, you won't get a sense of peace. You won't feel the love. Uh, it's nothing like Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13, or even our Declaration of Independence. Um, it's about brutality, about jihad. Now, I'm not speaking about all Muslims everywhere. There are kind, loving, caring people in that faith. But at the core, at the essence of the Koran and the Muslim faith, there is an absolute disregard for anybody outside of that religion. And that is nothing new. We go back to 700, you go back to the Spanish Wars and the the Moors. In fact, before really 1948, uh, the last war against the Muslims was fought against the Ottoman Empire uh, in 1917. So it's it's been a constant in history, but it's been kind of kept under wraps in our generation. Of course, it raised its ugly head on 9-11 and following, and now we're all dramatically aware of the threat and the challenge that is posed there. So there are irreconcilable differences between what God plans for Israel and what the Arabs hope to accomplish. We find that in our second scripture in Zechariah chapter 12. God promises, behold, I will make Jerusalem a a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding people when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem a cup of stumbling, causing all the nations, the world's capitals, to be concerned about what happens in Israel. And you have to realize that the world won't even allow Israel to make Jerusalem its capital. They insist upon Tel Aviv. Even America will not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. This is really quite remarkable. So we see an inevitable destiny of Israel, and yet we see irreconcilable differences. We see Israel as the unmovable object. We see the Arab cause seemingly as the irresistible force. And we are in a period of pause right now on the prophetic calendar. And don't think we're moving towards peace. The Arab mentality is very patient We've seen that in their meticulous planning for their various attacks. And their pride has been dramatically infringed upon by the continued Jewish successes in war after war, from 1948 in the War of Independence to 1956 when Egypt and Nasser attacked Israel to 1967 in the the Six-Day War. Of course, the joke was the Jews had to get it over in six days to enjoy their Sabbath, and that's just about what happened. They were attacked by a huge force, and yet they took back the old city from Jordan, took back the Golan from Syria, and pushed back the Egyptians to the Suez. And they maintained in that condition, much like right now, from 1967 to 1973, and you saw the update how the forces of Egypt and Syria, like, like a pincer move, came in and swooped down. And it's remarkable as you study that event how close Israel came to capitulating. 
They considered it. Golda Meir and her generals considered giving up and having a negotiated peace because the Syrian tanks could have swept right down to Haifa and Tel Aviv and cut the country in half. It was that close. But as you read that secular history, you see the fingerprints of God. You recognize that God did great things time and time again. And that brings us to our next verse, verse 3. And it shall happen in that day, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone, now not just for the surrounding nations, but what? For all people. For all people. Israel will be a stone of offense to the entire world. And sadly, that appears to include our country. And we can see how those leanings are evident even now. And it is absolutely biblical for that to happen, however sad it may be, whatever consequences it might bring if we ever come to curse Israel. Because what did Genesis say? I will curse those that curse my people. That's a fact. And so we see all people will be stumbled by Israel. All those who heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth be gathered against it. So the seeming irreconcilable differences between the Arab community and Israel, and then between the entire world and then the people of Israel, will be resolved by God himself. And we hear the talking heads, we see the shuttle diplomacy, we hear all the peace conferences and the treaties. None of it is going to lead to true peace until the Prince of Peace sets up residency in Jerusalem itself. And so the history of Israel in the past 50 years is, for the most part, a glory story. It's victory after victory. It's expansion after expansion. They certainly have suffered losses, especially in 73. But even when Hussein tried to lob the scuds in during the First Desert War, it was largely ineffective. There seemed to be a a shield, an umbrella of grace over Israel. There was damage, but nothing what they intended. I can assure you of that. But I must tell you that grief lies ahead. We've looked back to the beginning of Israel, the great I wills of Genesis. We've paused now in the present and seeing the tension that exists in Israel as their enemies surround them and are sworn. The president of Iran, when he was making those statements, he was at an Arab summit that was about the abolition of Zionism. They called together a summit. That's where those statements came from. What other head of state could ever get away with calling for the annihilation of an entire sovereign people group? But it works with Israel, and there's precious little outcry. But I must tell you that grief lies ahead for the Israeli people. As we fast forward down the calendar of prophetic truth, Israel will be betrayed. Israel will be abandoned. Israel will be deceived, misled, invaded. And eventually, Revelation reveals that two-thirds of the Israeli people will be destroyed when their covenant with the Antichrist turns sour. That is not good news, but that is what the Bible tells us. They'll be betrayed and abandoned, but God will not forget his people. It will seem that way, but he will not let them be. You see, let's remember that we can learn from this and understand where we're at prophetically and and get a good grasp on what the Bible teaches But the history of Israel 
is really a typical history. Just as the book of Revelation has the seven churches and we can identify different kinds of believers, different kinds of communities of believers, the same is true of Israel. It is typical of the life path of many believers. So I ask you tonight, where would you fall as the nation Israel? Would you be in a place like Abraham walking in faith? Would you be in a place like Exodus where the people wandered in the wilderness? Is your Christian walk dry and dusty and repetitive and monotonous and predictable and lacking in fruit and adventure? Are you wandering around the mountains? Is 2005 just like 2003 and 1999? Is it just an endless loop of repetition? If so, you need to change that tonight. Or perhaps you're like Joshua, and maybe you're conquering the land. Let me encourage you. Let me say to you, God has new mountains for you. God has things for you in 2006 you can't even imagine. The Bible says, exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. That is what God wants to do for you without reservation. All he asks is for you to give up chronic disobedience and walk in steps of faith. And living water will flow from your innermost being. Does that sound like your life? It certainly can. Maybe you're like the children of Israel in a time of idolatry. Maybe you're in bondage as they were in Egypt. Is that typical of your life? Do you find yourself with self-destructive habits, inflicting damage upon yourself, becoming your own worst enemy? Do you find yourself wasting your resources and really performing service to idols, giving what God has given you in talent, time, and resources for things that do not profit eternally? You know, people are setting up tonight. It's the 31st of December, trying to figure out the wise investments to make for tax purposes for the the best investments, the the wisest stock portfolio. The question remains for you and I, in 2005, did we invest in eternity? Have we sent things ahead? Will we find not just a greeting from God, well done, but also a rich reward for that which we have invested in eternity? That's the question. Or would you be like the nation of Israel when they were warned by their prophets? Maybe your body has been in church in 2005, but your heart has been far from the Lord. And you've heard message after message and tug after tug of God's Holy Spirit, but you've been unwilling to make the changes, to make the disconnects in your relationships, to make your priorities in a proper order that God could bless you. The question is not, does God want to bless us? The question is, are we blessable? Have we put ourselves in a position in a spiritual condition that God can endorse our behavior. We learn that from our children. Do you reward your children when they lie to you and they disobey and they steal? Of course you can't. It's not because you don't love them. It's you simply cannot reinforce that behavior. Same is true of God. He's waiting for you to get blessable. I may have invented the word, but the, the truth is there. Or maybe you're like Israel in exile. Maybe your heart is so far from the Lord, you resent even being here tonight, and you you can't wait to get out. That's how Israel became. They couldn't even hear from God at a certain point. And God said in Deuteronomy, when that happens, though I love you and it will break my heart, I will send you into exile. 
And God will do that because he is faithful to his word. And so he sent prophet after prophet after prophet and priest to his people. Just as I come to you tonight, and I know some hearing this are being warned that you need to change your ways, that you need to absorb the grace of God into your life and abandon the counterproductive behavior that will only hurt you and those that you love. And God has so much for you. He's great. He's so good. And you might be sitting there thinking, you don't know how I failed. I could not be used by God. Let me tell you, I know what it means to fail and fail in a spectacular fashion. And I'm here to tell you that God will be there to pick up the ashes. He has not abandoned Israel. He will not abandon us. It may not happen overnight, but God will restore you. God's grace is so overwhelming, so overflowing, it's, it's magnificent. And so wherever you're at tonight, know this. God wants to take you forward. He always deals with you in the present. He always wants to take wherever you're at and make you the best you can be. Now, you may have limited your options by unwise choices and disobedience in the past, but God will take you from wherever you're at right now. He wants to move you to the very best you can be to be the most productive person in his kingdom. If you want to know a snapshot of what that means, read the story tonight of the prodigal son. We don't find the father on the porch with his arms crossed, tapping his finger. Well, you finally came home, I see. That's not the attitude at all. You see him running down the driveway with his robe in his hands, couldn't wait to greet his son who had squandered every single opportunity and every single penny. And he greeted him and he hugged him and he wept upon him and he gave him a robe and he gave him a ring and a feast. That's what God wants to do to you tonight. I know God is speaking to some here and saying, come home. Now, many, many, many of the ends of our messages here are directed at people coming to Christ for the first time. That is not the case tonight. This is for the family. This is for those who know. This is for those who know better. And this is for those who want to make changes. I'm here to tell you God wants to cooperate with you. He wants you to make the move. Stop putting it off. Stop procrastinating. We aren't talking about emotional New Year's resolutions. We're talking about wise Christian practical living. For you to come up to the heavenly places God intends for you and to come out of the gutters where you've been living. Whether that means your thought life or your habits or your relationships, God can change that tonight. I can't. You can't. You'll struggle and find only frustration. But I can assure you God's overwhelming grace will be there for you tonight. And I know God wants to do great things with this church. He's not finished with us just because we have a terrific facility. Many, many churches have cathedrals and campuses and Bible schools. It's the future. We need not look in the rear view mirrors for the past. God has things planned for Calvary of Albuquerque. We need to impact not just this community, but this state and this country. And there are people here tonight who are being called to the mission field and need to say yes. There are people here tonight who have been squandering their gifts. Here's a question for you, and then we'll close. Can you say that you are using the gifts God has given you for the benefit of his kingdom? 
I can assure you if the answer is no, the question should follow, why not? That can change tonight. Whatever you do, a student, a school teacher, a housewife, whatever your profession, that is just a cover. You need to be about the Father's business. We all do. We all need to be fully given over to these things. Because for the sake of arguments, let's imagine that we know for certain Jesus Christ will return on New Year's Eve next year. How would you live your life for the next 365 days? Just suppose you knew. We don't know. But I submit to you, you ought to consider framing your priorities in that fashion. We lost dear people from this church in the past year. We had TV news crews here all last week. How has the church responded? How would you feel about the, the homicides? Well, we lose people every week here, some in more dramatic and violent fashions, and it's awful and tragic. But we'll lose people next week from this church, and we don't know that we'll be here on New Year's Eve next year, by whatever fashion. I told the reporter, we're all going to die. It's just a matter of time. And so we ought to be prepared. And the great thing about the Christian life is that if our heart stops beating tomorrow, we're assured of an eternal address in heaven. Well, here's my final challenge. Then we'll have Sarah come back out. If you need to make that commitment tonight, God God knows we need monuments in our life. That's why they erected stone monuments in Genesis, and that's why the temple and the tabernacle and the altars, because we need, God doesn't need it, we need it. I'm suggesting to you that you make December 31st, 2005, a turning point, a monument in your life, where you make changes, and then, not with willpower, but with God's power, covenant with him to cooperate and keep them. And I'm going to suggest you find somebody to hold you accountable for that in the coming days. Because it's easy to make those choices and then abandon them in the privacy of our own heart. So that's my suggestion. We're going to close in prayer here in a moment. I'm going to ask you just to be still. Let God speak to you. I don't pretend to know the direction you ought to take, but I do know there are scriptural principles that God wants to do great things for every one of you. Listen now without exception, without exception. Not for the guys up here, not for the full-time ministry guys, not for the people who seem to be gifted. Without exception, everybody hearing this, God has great things for you. A future not filled with fear, a future filled with hope and growth and fruit. That's what he wants for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are just grateful for your grace. And I I am certain your spirit is speaking to hearts right now. I pray it would penetrate past all the excuses, past the fear and past the failure, and come to the heart of the matter. That serving and loving you with every fiber of our being and releasing everything else. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean hardship. It may mean incredible material blessing. That's in your hands, Lord. But I want you, Lord, to just reveal yourself to people in fresh new ways, not because it's New Year's Eve, but because it's the wise thing to do for us to listen to you, 
to recognize the greatness of your grace and then to accept it fully into our hearts. And I just believe, Lord, that you're touching and changing and redirecting as needed in each heart right now. In Jesus' name, amen.